Well, the title of my message is simply, Who's Number One? So what did you think of when you heard that? Well, there's a football game today, isn't there? Well, this has absolutely nothing to do with the football game. Who's number one? Who's number one? You know, as long as I'm number one in your life, I don't care who's, who else is on the list. You ever think that way about anything? As long as I'm number one on your list, I don't care who else is on that list. Well, that might be okay if I'm a piece of pizza. And I'm your favorite piece of pizza. And I don't care how many other kinds you like as long as I'm your favorite piece. Or if I'm your favorite color, that's okay. You can like all the other colors you want as long as I'm your favorite color. If I'm your favorite pastor, I don't care who all the other ones are on the list. One amen. Thank you, brother. You're my favorite pastor. It's a lonely world. (laughs) But seriously, who cares, right? There's a lots of things in life that, you know what, it's, it's nice. We can, we can kind of categorize things in this category, and then we can list them in a priority. And man, if you remember one in that list, that's pretty cool. And it really doesn't matter that there's two, three, four, five, six on that list. However, if my wife looks at me and says, Mike, you're my favorite husband. You know, when we walk up to the stairs and go into our bedroom, I'm glad it's you more than all the rest. I'm not all right with that. That category is a very small category, and I'm the only one that that wants to be on that list, right? If you're a wife or a woman, the husband better not tell you that, hey, you're one of my favorite women. You're at the, matter of fact, you're at the top of the list of all the women that I enjoy being around. No, there's certain categories where, you know what? There's only one spot on the list. And there's only one person that belongs in that spot. Now, in our culture, we've got a lot of areas where that can be all right, but we've got a lot of areas where it shouldn't be all right. But our culture... Uh, doesn't really like this mentality of, you know, either or. It's either this or it's this. You know, either I am or I'm not. Our culture has shifted a lot to this place where we're much more comfortable in our culture with, well, why not both? This and this. We've gotten this acceptance mentality in our culture that we really don't like absolute things very much at all. But there's a problem that that mindset runs into, or at least it better in the life of a Christian. There's a major obstacle that gets in the way of that both or and way of thinking, and that's when we run into God. When we run into God, this male, maybe both, I got a long list, but God, you're at the top mentality, it doesn't work. A couple weeks ago, we spoke about idols, and we looked at a couple of verses in the book of Exodus, where they, they, the commandments, actually. And in verse 5 of chapter 20, it says, I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God. Jealous, meaning you're mine, and I'm yours, and there's no one else in that category. 
Matter of fact, it's repeated in Numbers, or excuse me, in Exodus. Did I say Numbers before? No, good. In Exodus 34, verse 14. For the Lord, and then it says this, whose name is Jealous. How many of you knew that that's one of the names of God in the Bible? Jealous. I, the Lord your God, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God is not going to allow himself to be reduced to one of many, many items on somebody's spiritual buffet. He's the only item on that spiritual buffet. Not much of a buffet, is it? And the world would look at it and say, boy, they're pretty intolerant. You're pretty arrogant. You're pretty judgmental. And the answer is yes, because God is. He is a very, very jealous God. God will eventually force us to make a decision. And if we're truly a Christian, we should have already made that decision. There's a lot of people, I believe, who think they're Christians, but they have never come to that conclusion that they have to choose. It's not God and, it's God. Period. If he's the one true God, like we say he is, he commands undivided loyalty. Now, a lot of us right away start to cringe and the hair on the back of our neck starts to stand up just a little bit. Because we have such a wrong conception of who God is. He is this God. He's this all-consuming God. He is this God who demands a choice. But when we think that way, we think of losing liberties and losing freedoms and having to take orders and being basically miserable. But God knows that his plan for us to feel totally fulfilled in our life, to accomplish the destiny he has called us into, to fill us with the blessings that he has for us, it all flows out of that choice, commitment. You know, we can walk in all of the blessings of God, or we can just walk in a few of the blessings of God. And I'm convinced the only reason he even lets us walk in a few of them is when we're so confused is to honor his own name. It really doesn't have anything to do with us. So he's going to force us to choose. We're going to look at a story, as I told you, in 1 Kings chapter 18 especially. Now, it's a story that to some of you might be really familiar. Some of you may have never, ever heard the story. So we're going to give you a little bit of background, and then we'll go into the story. And when you look in the Old Testament, sometimes you say, ah, it's Old Testament. Boy, this story is relevant to our modern culture. It's as relevant today as it was back then. So I'm going to give you a little background first, and the story actually is going to be about a prophet named Elijah. Most would say the greatest prophet, Elijah. And it's going to be about Elijah and an experience he has on Mount Carmel. And the other key player in it is a man by the name of Ahab, who's a king. But a little background first. The Jewish nation had split. We had now two countries. We had Israel, the country of Israel, called Israel, and the country of Judah, Judea. And the northern one was Israel. And that northern country has been in a mess 
for years. They've had king after king after king. One for a couple years, shoot, one of them for, I think it was seven days. They're killing each other off. They're wiping out families. They're fighting for power. They're fighting for authority. And you can imagine the kind of economic chaos there is. It's been a country in a mess. Primarily because they have turned their back from God. Remember, this is a Jewish people. God's chosen people. God's covenant people. Who have a covenant with, with God. At one time, these people also said, yes, we will obey all your commandments that we might walk in the blessings that you have for us. But they've rebelled. And the kings were one evil king after another evil king. And this had been going on for years. And finally there's a king who actually he ends up being king for about 22 years. And it brings stability. Because he's been there for a long time. So the people are a little bit more content because the king and the government is stabilized. But there's another problem with this king. In 1 Kings 16, verse 33, it says this about Ahab, the king. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Kings and the list of kings and the quality of the kings in the nation of Israel, this guy's horrible. And then it goes on and says a few things about him that really would irritate God. He not only allowed idols and Baal worship, he built altars to Baal. And it wasn't bad enough that he built altars to Baal. He knelt and worshipped at those altars to Baal. And then he also built what they called the Asherah poles. Asherah was a wooden pole that was supposed to be symbolic of a female goddess. And they worshipped that. So this man, Ahab as it said, had done more than all the other kings to provoke God because of the way he had turned from God. And in the midst of all that idol worship and idolatry, he married a woman that's your worst nightmare. Her name was Jezebel. Don't ever call your wife Jezebel. Don't ever name your daughters Jezebel. This woman was evil. She was evil. It was her goal to wipe out all of the, the godly people that worshiped God. She wiped out almost all the prophets, it says. She killed them all. And, and they had somebody, a, a servant, who was kind of over their household. And his name was Obadiah, who was a God-fearing man, yet he was serving Ahab, kind of trying to balance between these two worlds. Because he was a God-fearing man, he had taken and, and rescued a hundred of the prophets and, and hid 50 of them in this cave and 50 of them in another cave, and he was trying to take care of them. But she'd killed them all. And we don't see Elijah mentioned yet, but from what we read when he does show up on the scene, they really hated Elijah. He'd been causing problems for them. And they wanted to kill him too. So this is who the king is, Ahab with his queen, Jezebel. Now the story that I want to focus on. First I want to read in verse 1 of chapter 17. This is where Elijah just sort of pops up on the scene. Even though as we'll see later on, it looks like he's been around a while. But we see it here in verse 1, it says, 
Now Elijah, the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Now, that's a pretty powerful word. Elijah is bringing a word of judgment to Ahab and the nation of Israel. But what we could almost miss completely is there's more to it even because the god Baal that they worshipped had many different names. One of them was the storm god, the fertility god. He was the god that would bring the rain so the crops would grow. And Elijah standing there saying in their face, Baal isn't going to help you this time. As surely as the God of Israel lives, it isn't going to rain and there isn't even going to be so much as dew on the ground. Well, needless to say, that didn't make Ahab very happy. It doesn't show us what Jezebel was thinking, but I'm sure she wasn't very happy. And the Lord then says to, to, to a, or Elijah, I want you to go to this specific place and I want you to stay there. It's a nice place by a brook so you'll have water. And don't worry about food. Ravens are going to bring you bread and meat every single day. How cool is that? So that's what he does. He goes there and he's actually hidden there. So Ahab and Jezebel couldn't find him. And every day the ravens would bring him food, bread and meat. Every day. And he would drink of the water from the brook. But after a period of time, the brook dried up because there was going to be no rain, no dew. So God then moves him, moves Elijah. He says, I want you to go to this another location. And I, I encourage you to read these stories. They're, they're amazing. We don't have time to gig into each one of them. But where he tells him to go is a widow who has a son. And he goes there. And, and remember, the country's in a drought, in an extended drought. There's very little food. And he goes to this widow who has this son and And he says, could I have some water? And as she's walking to get him some water, she says, oh yeah, by the way, bring me some bread. Well, this poor widow would have turned around and looked and said, we don't have any bread. As a matter of fact, I got a bowl with just a tiny little bit of flour in it. And I've got a jar over here with just a tiny little bit of oil in it. And before you came up and asked me to get you some water, my son and I were planning to, to make that last little bit of flour and oil into a piece of bread, and we were going to eat it and die. And here this prophet of God shows up and says, you know what, make some bread, but make sure you give me mine first. And the promise is you'll never run out of flour and you won't run out of oil. And sure enough, it held true. God brought the prophet to that place to be taken care of, but also to be a blessing. If you'll read the story, you'll also find out the woman's son dies. And she looks at this and says, why would you bring this problem upon me? And Elijah raises him from the dead. Great story. Read it for yourselves. You'll enjoy it. So he's there for a long time, and until the Lord tells him, you know what, it's time for you to go back to to Ahab. I want you to go to Ahab and I got a message for you to deliver. Now, he goes and he runs into Obadiah. Now, Obadiah is a God-fearing man, but he works for Ahab. 
He's trying to balance this act. He, he's trying to save a hundred prophets after Jezebel killed all, all the others. And he says to Obadiah, and Obadiah sees him and goes, Wow, Elijah, is that really you? I'm paraphrasing just a little. And he goes, Yeah, this is me. And he says, I want you to go, Ahab, and tell him I'm here. And Obadiah looks at him and says, Are you nuts? What have I done to you that you would send me to Ahab to have him kill me? We've been looking all over for you. Every city, every, every country had to declare that they had no idea where you were. And that there was no prophets. And now you want me to go to him and say, he's here? He'll think I've been hiding you. And they'll kill me. And, and, and Elijah just simply says, don't worry. Go tell him. I'll be here. So Obadiah does. He goes. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17, I'm going to start reading there. And I'm going to read, I think, until about verse 19. When, when, and it came about when Ahab saw Elijah. Okay, so now he sees Elijah. They've been in a drought for almost three full years with not even any dew on the ground. You can imagine the stability in that nation that had been there was gone. The people were upset. They were looking for food. They were starving for food. And here comes Elijah. And it says, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? He's trying to blame Elijah for all their problems. It's your fault, you mighty man of God, that we've been suffering as a nation like this. Well, Elijah's going to have none of that. And he says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all of Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. That wicked woman not only killed all the godly prophets, she raised up 450 and 400 and and took care of them. They were on the government dole. False teachers. False prophets. And Elijah says, get them all, gather all the people, and I'll meet you all at Mount Carmel. That's the scene. I'm going to read, I think, in verse 21 again. It says, And Elijah came near to the people. And he says, How long? How long will you hesitate? Some translations say waver between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. And the people didn't say a word. It's interesting, that phrase that's translated uh, hesitate between or waver between means to limp or hobble between two bows or sticks. What do you picture when you hear that to wobble between two sticks? Somebody trying to hobble along on crutches that isn't very good with it, that's unstable. They can't hardly get from one place to another. 
He's saying, what is wrong with you people? How long are you going to be this unstable? How long are you going to be wavering between worshiping God and worshiping Baal? How long is your, are you going to have a divided mind and a divided heart? If Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal, follow Him. Make up your mind. For these people, today was the day they were going to be forced to choose. God wasn't going to put up with it any longer. They were trying to hold on to two things that were mutually exclusive. You can't worship God and worship other things. We can't worship God and have other idols in our lives, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. And some of those idols in our lives are really good things until we make them an idol. They can be really good things. They can be things God really wants us involved with, but He never wants them to become idols in our life. And He's forcing these people to choose between the two things. But you notice they didn't say a word. Sometimes I think that's a perfect picture of us. God speaks. He says, it's time for you to choose what's your idol going to be. And we just... Why would you do that? I like my idol. I'm not sure I take you seriously. Is it really a big deal? You know, these people are sitting here thinking, well, you know, we are God's chosen people. But we've been worshiping Baal and, God, we've had some stability and the crops have been pretty good and, you know, God, Baal's this God of fertility and he brings the rains and, geez, we don't want to tick off Baal. It's been a blessing. But, ooh, God of Israel, we know the history of Israel and, and God, God is pretty important too. And we want to hang on to both, the benefits of both. And God is saying, I'm fed up with that. It's going to be one or the other, and today you're going to choose. And I'm going to give you evidence, and I'm going to give you proof that the God I'm talking about is the living God. And you're going to be forced to face this reality. You're either going to have to choose the living God of Israel, or you're going to have to reject Him. And then you have just Baal left. You can modernize that if you'd like. Hopefully you already are in your mind. What are the things in our lives that are competing with God for our affections. What things in our life is God saying, it's an idol, it's got to go. Choose today whom you're going to serve, me or that stuff or that thing or that person, that job, that new home, that, that, that. We need to be really, really careful because just like here, there's going to come a day God say, choose. I'm through messing around. Choose. There was no response from the people. So then Ahab brings a challenge to prove that God's the real thing. He says, here's what we're going to do. You 450 priests of Baal, I want you guys, we need two bulls, two oxen brought, and we're going to sacrifice two of them. You guys are going to cut up one over here, and you're going to put it on a pile of sticks, and if you have an altar, that's fine too, whatever you want to do, but uh, no fire. And we're going to sacrifice that oxen. And then I'm going to take the other oxen, 
And he actually builds an altar with 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, I'm going to make a pile of wood, but no fire. And I'm going to lay the meat on that altar. And then we're going to call on our God. And we're going to cry out to our God to come with fire and consume the sacrifice. Now, in the natural, Elijah's not very smart. He's in Baal territory. I mean, it's like giving him the home court advantage. And there's 450 of them, and there's just one of him. That would seem to be bad odds. And something that could, you might even miss is Baal, the god of storms. Man, all they got to do is get Baal to throw a little lightning bolt down here, and they got fire, and they got it made. This is what he's good at. So he lays it out. And this is what we're going to do. And you know what the people said? Great idea. They were finally getting into it. Great idea. So what happens? Well, if you read it, you know, I sometimes misuse this scripture to justify my sarcasm. But I... (laughs) I think Elijah and God got just a little bit sarcastic. Maybe a lot of bit sarcastic. But I guess he was led by God, and I'm usually not. He says, okay, guys, you go first. I mean, it's like a football game. You're the home team. You're going to play with your 11 players. I'm going to just send one guy out there, and you get the ball first, and we'll see who wins. Stupid. I am sure those prophets were so confident. About 9 o'clock in the morning, as best we can tell, the time of a typical first, first uh, offering. They got their animal cut up and put it in the pile of wood, and, and they got their little altar, and 450 of them start crying out to their God. And they just continue to cry out, Come, O Baal, come, O Baal. And then they cry out some more. And then they cry out some more. And then they cry out some more. Then they cry out some more. And now it's noon. And I just like to picture Elijah sitting on a grassy knoll, but he probably wasn't. And he finally, he comes over and says, how's it going, guys? Well, he didn't really say it that way. You know what he says? Yell louder! He could be on a journey. He might be sleeping. He's really busy. Yell louder. So they start screaming and yelling louder and they crawl up on the altar and they're dancing around. Have you ever seen any demonic worship? It's like they just work themselves into a frenzy. And that's the picture here. And they're working themselves into the frenzy. They're dancing and shuffling and screaming, come obey. It's not working. They take swords and lances and they start cutting themselves. And the Bible says, until they're gushing blood. Nothing demonic about any of this. And guess what? They do this until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You know where they stopped? Baal sent lightning. No, he didn't send lightning. There was no Baal. There is no Baal. There is no God named Baal. He couldn't answer because he doesn't exist. Six hours, 450 prophets, and nothing. And then... After Elijah gets through mocking them and making fun of them in front of all of Israel, it says, 
We're going to read, starting in verse 30 of 1 Kings 18. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar, and in the name of the Lord he made a trench around the altar. As if he wasn't in bad enough position already, now he digs a trench all the way around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he says, Get four pitchers and fill them full with water and pour it on top of the burnt offering and on top of the wood. And then he said, Do it again. And they did it a second time. And Ahab said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. Verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, at three o'clock, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are the God in Israel, and that I am your servant. And I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, consumed the wood, consumed the stones, consumed the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord... He is God. Lord, He is God. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets. Seize those 450 prophets of Baal. Do not let a single one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon, and he killed every one of them. He had every single one of them slain. Now, can you imagine being the people of Israel? They had been standing there silent when they were challenged with making a choice. Why do you stand there wavering between the two opinions? Not a word. They didn't want to reject Baal because they thought there were benefits of this God, Baal. They didn't want to reject God of Israel He had been the God of their forefathers. There were benefits of that. Why can't we have both? God says, I'm a jealous God. We are so much like these people so often. Why can't we have this? Why can't we have that? Why can't we be this way? What's wrong with an idol in our life as long as God's number one? And this is number two, and this is number three, and this is number four. God says, I'm a jealous God. My name is Jealous. The central question of this whole event was back in verse 21, where Elijah says he came near to all the people and he said, how long will you hesitate between these two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. Truth demands a choice. It demanded a choice then. It still demands a choice today. Is the word of God truth? 
Is what the Word of God says true? Is God the God of truth? Is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? If He is, it demands a choice. He asks for all of us. He wants to be number one, and there is nothing else in that category. All these other wonderful blessings are fine as long as they are there and we keep in mind they are gifts from God and they are to bring Him glory. But as soon as they become an idol in our life and our affections slant there, we're in trouble. And if you don't think we have idols, we're wrong. We are deceived. We talked about that a lot a couple weeks ago, so I won't go there again. But this demand to make a choice is the same one we face today. And you know what? We face it continually. We face it theologically. Our theology, our belief system is challenged in our culture all the time. In our, country, our culture right now, this idea of pluralism, lots of different gods, your God, my God, who cares? It's all the same God, all that nonsense in the name of tolerance and inclusion. It's garbage. But the world's trying, it's just, let's just be nice to each other. Can't we all get along? Yes, we can be nice to each other. And yes, we can get along. But we can't worship the same God because your God's Baal. And when we take that stand as a radical Christian, we're considered a bigot and a hypocrite and intolerant and nobody wants to be around us. God says, you know what? If I'm God, choose. If I'm not, serve your idols. Those religions, all of them, deny the exclusivity of Christ. All that other gibberish about God and Jesus being a wonderful prophet and all, whatever they want to call him, it's all lies. It denies who Christ is, the only Son of God, God in the flesh. The only way to the Father is through Jesus the Son. We are being challenged every day in our culture to choose theologically what do we believe. We're also being forced to choose morally. And this maybe even gets closer to home in our own lives. When we try to blend an unbiblical lifestyle with the claim that we're Christians, we're deceiving ourselves. A non-biblical lifestyle, a life that we choose of sin, contrary to the word of God, and yet we stand over here and proclaim we're Christians. We're deceiving ourselves. It's a lie. We need to say, yes, if I'm going to believe he is God, I am going to serve him. How am I going to serve him? Obediently. Why? Because I love him, because he loves me. It's a continual challenge. And on our life, styles, I mean, it's, it's a challenge because in our culture, anything goes, right? Anything goes. Just leave us alone. Anything goes. Well, that might be okay for the culture. The prince of this world is Satan. He's the one in control. Is it a surprise that our culture is going that way? It shouldn't be. But God has made a way for us to be different and to receive the goodness and blessing of God because we are obedient morally. So we're not only theologically challenged, we're morally challenged, and lastly, we are spiritually challenged with a choice all the time. When we allow anything to take the place of God, it's a spiritual choice. 
any idol, it's a spiritual choice. Anything that becomes between us and God, it's a spiritual decision. Anything we put above God, it's a spiritual decision. And quite frankly, anything we put in the same category on the list, even if God's at the top, it's a spiritual choice. Every day, every day, we face these choices. And wavering between these two opinions has actually become philosophically respectable in our culture. Let's sit down and talk philosophically about God or that higher power or whatever it is that's out there. Most of it's garbage. Politically correct. That's a term for our culture, right? Politically correct. It is not politically correct to say the things that I say standing up here. Would you agree with that? You go out in the streets and talk like this, you are not politically correct. Who wants to be politically correct? Don't raise your hands, I don't want to see. Hopefully, (laughs) Matthew. (laughs) We don't want to be politically correct, right? Not if that's the culture that makes, that's the thing that makes us politically correct in our culture. We want to be radically different than our culture. Truth calls for a choice. No middle ground. No hobbling around on a couple of sticks or crutches trying to decide which way to go. It's so unbalanced and it's so out of the will of God. Really, last week I spoke about being a radical Christian, living a radical Christian life. The only way you can do that is if you made this choice. If we don't make this choice, it's impossible. Hopefully, we all make that choice. God will require his people to choose. He will require it. He's a God of grace and mercy, thank goodness. But he's also just. And if he's going to require it of his people then, he's going to require it of his people today. Why don't we just choose so it's not a difficult test? Because it it will be as difficult as he needs needs to make it. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would take the words that I've spoken and use those that are of you and let the others just fall to the ground. Lord, I don't want to be a stumbling block in any way. But Lord, I pray the truth resonates in our hearts and in our minds. God, that we are challenged by the truth to make a choice. That we wouldn't be like the people of Israel when they were standing silent before Elijah but we would be like the people of Israel who have seen and it has been proven that you are the one true God and they fell on their faces and cried out to you. Lord, I thank you that that choosing you is the greatest victory we could ever secure. That it does open the floodgates of, of gates of blessing. It makes the promises of your word available to each one of us. And it brings a satisfaction and an inner peace in the midst of the craziest storm. So Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would just woo and draw us. Reveal those things in our life that need to be dealt with. 
Don't let us get comfortable serving idols. Bring us to that place. That place of decision. And God, we cry out for your grace to make the right choice and to walk it out for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.